Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Research and data supports that companies that embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, one, they're more innovative, they're productive, they're able to meet a diverse workforce, but also meet the needs of an ever-changing society. We know that we serve a diverse population and being able to understand the different needs and expectations and supports and services is important. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm glad to be back here today. I've taken a little hiatus from the podcast and Allison Lester and Sarah Merrill have hosted a few episodes, but I am back in the hot seat here on this February morning, and I'm happy to be here. If you're new to the podcast, we talk about issues related to marketing communications, and we try to dispel myths around perceptions of what may be of the career of public relations and of communications issues. And we talk a lot about a lot of diverse subjects, which brings me to today's guest. Today, we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm happy to welcome today Tanisha Fitzgerald Baker. She's a friend and colleague, and she is manager of DEI for Knoxville Utilities Board where she works on creating a diverse and inclusive work environment with equitable opportunities for all. And she supports areas that impact the employee and customer experience through the lens of DEI. So excited to speak to her because I have so many questions about DEI. And I know that it's a new concept for many. And we're all trying to figure out what our place in DEI is and how we can support it, how we can measure success. So Tanisha is a native of Knoxville, Tennessee. And she is graduate and valedictorian and Miss Austin East from the Austin East High School class of 1988. She continued her education, graduating from both Florida A&M and the University of Tennessee with degrees in actuarial science and education. Tanisha spent over 20 years working for equity and access and education as an educator and leader with Project Grad Knoxville. That's where we met as I serve on the board of Project Grad Knoxville and have always been so impressed with Tanisha and her tenacity and the impact that she's had on our communities. She retired from Project Grad in 2021 and started a new career with Knoxville Utilities Board, where, as I mentioned, she currently serves as Manager of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. She completed her Certificate in Social Enterprise Effectiveness from the University of Tennessee's Haslam School of Business. She's a graduate of Leadership Knoxville, Class of 2020, and was one of 30 across the state of Tennessee chosen for the 2021 Complete Tennessee Leadership Institute, which she completed along with the Mosaic Change Fellowship 2021 cohort as one chosen out of 21 across the state of Tennessee. I don't know. This makes me tired just thinking about everything you do, Tanisha. She's the recipient of numerous awards and recognitions, including the 2020 MLK Community Service Award. And in addition to her professional responsibilities, she's a sought-after panelist, presenter, and consultant. She's passionate about her calling to educate and elevate others. She founded Educational Enhancement Services Incorporated in 1998. She is also a founding member and current president of the Five Points Up Community Action Group, founding member of East Knox Lions Club, founder of the unifying concept of the Village of Knoxville, the host of a weekly radio show, Talking with T, of which she told me she has 401 episodes under her belt. 
She serves on several community boards as well as serving as the chair of the City of Knoxville's African American Equity Task Force. She is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority and continues to reside in the East Knoxville community she loves so much with her husband, Derek Baker, and her son, Tylen Baker. So, Tanisha, welcome to Misinterpreted. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me today. Tanisha, you and I met through Project Grad Knoxville, where I served on the board, and we're both colleagues and friends with Ronnie Chandler. She's the executive director. Love that woman. And the first time I ever heard equity as related to diversity, it was from Ronnie. And I didn't really understand it. Uh, I still probably don't have a full understanding of what does equity really mean in the DEI equation? Sure. So first of all, again, I want to thank you for having such an important conversation. But let me start with the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a little bit about those terms. And when we think about diversity, often people's minds immediately go to the big things like race, religion, age, even geography. But I stand on all of us are diverse. And as soon as you have more than one person in the room, you have diversity. And so we think about all the ways that we're different. And when we embrace diversity, it's about accepting and respecting those differences. I'm going to jump forward to inclusion. And I really think that that is about a sense of belonging, feeling valued, welcomed, and that you're a part of a space and that you bring value to that. And then the term that you were referring to that really is where action and I think the rubber meets the road is when we look at equity. Often, people will use equality and equity as synonymous terms. They're a little different. Equality is about giving everyone the same thing, while equity is giving everyone what they need. So when we level the playing field and we think about equity, it is taking a more individualized approach in what each person, each group needs to be successful. And that looks different for everyone. How do you figure out as a manager of DEI in a large company how to look for equity needs and put together programs that promote equity? Or you you talk about giving everybody what they need. What does that mean in the context of your work life? As you mentioned, we met through my work with Project Grad, and I'm an educator at heart. So the work that I am doing, and I believe that anyone who approaches this space needs to start with education. So it was about understanding all of the terms that are related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, from microaggressions to privilege to biases, unconscious biases, all of those things, but really laying the foundation of education and understanding. And then we set purpose to that. So when you think about programming, I start with the training and exposure and embed experiences in that training so that people can really get a real life opportunity to touch and feel and grow in understanding around our differences, some cultural awareness, cultural competence. And then it moves on to really how does that relate? Because most people, regardless of the term or the initiative or what you're doing, want to know what's the win? Why are we doing this? And so you have to help discover the why and how it helps a company be better, how it helps a community to be better, how it helps projects and movements and all of that to advance. And so that's at the core of where I start. 
And then around that, when you say, how do you look for equity? You're looking for spaces where everyone has fair chance. What are the discrepancies? What are the gaps? Where do you see deficiencies in, in data around representation? And it could be around pay equity, benefits equity. It could also be equity in advancement. And one of the things, if you're looking at an organization, I start with the candidate pool. Who are you attracting to your organization? How have you branded your organization so that you can attract diverse talent? Because the talent is out there, it is not exclusive to think about, I need to have high quality top talent in my company and I need diversity. Those work together. So I start with the candidate pool and then who makes it up from there? Who gets to the interview? Who gets hired? Where it's really a focus is who gets retained and promoted as well. So I know I kind of said a lot in my big spiel, but in an organization, those are the areas that we kind of start with and what we need to look for. You know, as I sit here and listen to you talk, I think that a lot of us automatically think DE and I, like you said at the beginning, is very much about race or the new term for affirmative action. And I think that, well, I know that I've experienced a lack of equity in my career based on gender and just perception and not having the same opportunities as other people and organizations, which is really why I started my own business, because I thought, well, if I'm going to have to play this game where it's not an even playing field, then I'll just go create my own playing field. So let's talk a little bit about what the stats say about workforces that commit to DEI practices. What kind of returns are businesses and organizations seeing when they commit to DEI and put put their money and their resources where their mouth is? Sure. So we talk about the what, lay the foundation of understanding. But then I said, really, to incite movement, you need the why and the benefits. So research and data supports that companies that embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, one, they're more innovative, they're productive. They're able to meet a diverse workforce, but also meet the needs of an ever-changing society. We know that we serve a diverse population and being able to understand the different needs and expectations and supports and services is important. When you think about equity, how you retain your employee and make a thriving workplace, a environment where people want to stay and put forth their best efforts often happens when you feel valued, included, and heard, and that you have an opportunity to grow and succeed within the company. So companies are finding, and it's been proven, that when they have a focus and set DEI as a priority, they're more productive. For In a for-profit business, profits seem to grow higher. In a not-for-profit business or a non-profit, you seem to be more efficient and effective in your work. And so I think the larger corporations have really set the tone and set the stage for it to be more widespread. And so I'm really excited about what a lot of people are doing and a lot of conversations around DEI right now and what we're able to do in this space. So we always hear about DE&I as it relates to hiring and human resource practices and also, like you said, productivity and innovation. But how does it translate through marketing and communications. That's important too, right? The way words and pictures come together. 
Absolutely. And particularly, I feel in marketing, when you want to appeal to a global market or diverse community, representation and relatability is important. In order to do that, you need to understand people unlike yourself or unlike what you might be used to. And so companies that are able to do that obviously can increase their market because they have more diverse appeal. They can reach a wider range. Communications, understanding different communication styles, communication needs, which is another aspect of diversity, even down to our personalities, how we receive information, how we express ourselves, those things that are important and that would resonate with different groups are important for those companies who really have a focus on marketing and communications. Right, right. We're working on a rebrand of our agency website and all of our collateral materials. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, are we really representing DE&I in our new brand? And, and so you've inspired me to go back and, and look at that and make sure that we are. Let's face it, we're headquartered in Knoxville. I feel like it's been hard for me as a CEO in a small business. We just don't get diverse applicants. Even when I've placed ads on websites that purposely I was trying to attract diverse candidates, do you think that's a problem with just the perception that maybe our agency is all white women, which we're not, but typically that's been, we've been pretty non-diverse. So why are we having a hard time attracting diverse candidates when we have made an effort? Well, there's several factors that play into that. One you can only attract who you have. So you have a pool. So you're in a community that doesn't have a lot of diversity. We're probably, I don't know, 17% people of color, particularly African-Americans here in the city. So that's the pool you have to choose from. Between that and a lot of people think that their goal should be, well, I want to represent the same demographics as my community or my city. So they might shoot for 17%. But within that 17%, you only have people 18 to 64. So you have to reduce that and think, okay, well, these are the people that I have to pull from. Within that, how many of those are actually in my field? So you need to think about what is the pool of those that are in marketing, advertising, and that would fit well within your industry. So the factor outside of that has to do with the city, actually, attracting and retaining a diverse population. And as that grows, then we have the opportunities to diversify our companies in the industries that we have locally. You have to reach far sometimes, but it is about, particularly in a South and in a community that isn't as diverse, it is about branding yourself, increasing your appeal, networking, and relationships. So going back to your rebranding, you should think about what would I feel as an African-American woman When I first look at your site, what's the impression? What does that evoke for me? If I'm a Hispanic male, what will I feel when I first look at your site? What's the impression that I would get? And that's the beginning. And of course, putting yourself in circles where that you're known and respected through diverse communities is very helpful in an environment where there's limited diversity from the beginning. One thing that we are doing is we are helping to fund a new program at Pellissippi State Community College to bring communications careers to the forefront of consideration for diverse students because we are a very white female heavy industry communications. About 75% of the workforce are women 
and it's a not a very diverse career. So long term, I think that could really help the the East Tennessee community to crank out more diversity. But we decided to just go and partner with Ronnie and Pellissippi and try to do something at the grassroots level to introduce communications careers and hopefully mentor and bring up the next generation of communicators so we do have a, a more diverse pool. But, you know, that's a really long lens solution. It's going to take a while. And that's what it is. You're planting seeds now for fruit that you will yield later and getting more involved in the education piece and the exposure while people are making their career decisions is helpful and it will pay off. It will take some time, as you mentioned, but that's definitely a good start and great efforts. We also host um, project grad interns in the summer, and we've had a few who have come in and they thought they were going to major in one thing, but by the time they finished their internship with us, they changed their mind and decided to change their major to communications or journalism or public relations or marketing. I love that. That's one way that I guess I think that we're not making a difference, but we're trying to make a difference and planting those seeds and for the future generation. We always say in our firm that we don't do anything we can't measure. I'm curious how you measure what success looks like. You know, you talked about innovation and productivity, but do you actually have tools or software or formulas? How do you analyze results and report it to management? Because, you know, management always wants to know how it's impacting the bottom line and how do you prove that it actually is? So I'm going to share my philosophy. It is different than what you may hear in the mainstream. Not a fan of setting data goals around diversity, equity, and inclusion. My philosophy is that data reflects your efforts. If you really want a culture shift, you want a long sustaining change around diversity, equity, and inclusion, you develop strategies and the data will reflect if those strategies are working. However, I do look at the data, I look at trends and turnover in tenure in the promotion rates and look for gaps, right? If there's an obvious, okay, this group, this demographic is earning less, is getting promoted at a slower rate, has less opportunity for advancement, and then set strategies. What do we need to do? Do we need mentorship, leadership programs? Do we need pay equity evaluations? And then look at the data and say, yes, we are improving. We're doing better. We're on the right track. These strategies are working. Or we're implementing these strategies and tools to improve in this area, and we're not getting any movement. So we need to reevaluate what we're doing. So for me, as far as a metric tool, the goals are to improve in certain areas and look for gaps. So we have possibly goals around improving community relationships, having a presence in diverse communities. We look at particularly increasing our candidate pool and how we do that, because that's the start. You can't hire, promote, retain any of that if you don't get people attracted to apply at your company or your organization within your organization. There's software, and what I really like are those that do post checks or surveys. So you have your qualitative data. Obviously, we can we can track the number of any demographic that we have. We can track how fast they're moving, what they're getting paid, but how do the employees feel and what's their experience there? And so getting a lot of feedback, I do conversations. I have DEI one-on-ones 
And that's where those are individual conversations where I really get a good sense of an employee experience. I also have something called continuing conversations. And so while we have our formal training, I also host talk sessions that don't have an agenda, that allow people to get to know each other, share stories, and how their experiences relate to our work environment. Kind of use those as a gauge of what we need to address, what are some pockets or some issues that are barriers to the goals we're hoping to accomplish with diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is simply, as I said, to make sure that everyone feels valued, welcome, they're appreciated within that work environment, they have a fair chance to succeed, and, and we've leveled the playing field. So it's a little different. Some people will set a goal for 15% of my organization to represent people of color, those that are in underrepresented categories. However, you got to think about who you have to pull from. There's often the request, and particularly in education, we need more teachers of color. Well, the thing is, we aren't graduating more teachers of color. And so that's why I applaud your efforts in reaching back um, to colleges and to education programs, because we have to prepare more diverse candidates to be ready for whatever the industry is. Great survey tools, ones that will let you know how you're doing with climate and culture, and then give you suggestions and strategies moving forward from that. So it might seem a little backwards, but that's what I rest on when it comes to data around DEI. Those are all good points. And I wonder what you're hearing out there. We have so many remote workers and virtual workforces these days. Our firm is now hybrid. We have co-working space, but the majority of the time we work remotely. So are you hearing anything out there in the world of DE&I about how that translates into remote and virtual workforces and how is it more difficult to identify inequities or issues that may be going on, like microaggressions. You mentioned microaggressions. Is it harder to tap into that whenever you have a remote workforce? If it's completely remote, I think people have a natural desire to feel connected. What I would ask is, is it a level playing field? Does everyone have fair chance? And however your environment's structured, if it's virtual, what efforts are in place to make sure that every employee feels valued and that they belong, even if they're remote? So it takes a little more effort if your team isn't face-to-face. But I think understanding the workforce now, we've had a big shift since COVID and the flexibility and the desire for people to be able to have more of that balance is something that companies have to navigate as they make sure that even if someone isn't on site, they feel connected and respected as a part of the team. I've learned a lot about leading a virtual workforce through the pandemic and I wasn't very good at it at all at first. And then I realized that it really is about being intentional about the remote culture and putting activities into place like weekly touch bases, one-on-ones, leadership calls, purposely getting together for lunches. You don't have those water cooler conversations as much. We have to be really intentional about paying attention to everybody in the organization and making sure they're happy because when you're in person, it's easy to tell if something's up with somebody, you can read their body language or you just get a sense of their energy. But sometimes it's hard to know when you're virtual. So we've tried to put some things in place, but still it's a challenge. It's different. It is. And it's still about getting to know each person, their needs, their work style, their communication style, how they function best. And so in a virtual environment, we still have a style 
of how we function remotely and how we are at our best. So taking that time to get to know each person and support whatever the strategies are, what they need to feel like they can contribute is important. And I think, like I said, many people are having to navigate and figure that space out. So I don't think we have it as an exact science yet, but we're getting there. My son recently moved to Memphis. He was transferred for a job promotion. He's just been out of school for not quite two years. And he was transferred there to do sales training and help lead a sales team. And his sales team is predominantly Black men. And it's totally opened his eyes to, he has just told me stories of blatant racism and the inequities that Black men face right out of the gate. And he talks about how when they go on a sales call together, his Black rep is automatically at a disadvantage. And he went to West High School, so he's not a stranger to diversity. That's a very diverse high school. But being in these real-life situations, it has really opened his mind, and I would even say his heart, to actually experience empathy. And it seems like empathy is what we need to try to think about and embrace because we don't know what it's like to experience what others experience who may be discriminated against or not given equitable opportunities. So I'm just wondering if you have any advice for us as non-diverse population, and it was me, how can we put ourselves in positions to truly experience empathy and relate so that diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives actually mean something to us. And it's more than just the the next hot buzz term. All right. So that's a lot. But I'll (laughs) start start with one thing you mentioned about being non-diverse. And I still believe that we are all diverse. So it's starting with the acceptance that we're all different. And whether that be through gender, geography, genetics, race, religion, all of those things. It is difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone. You don't have similar experiences or connections, but what you can do is learn more about that person and their culture and their experiences and how they connect to the world. And then accepting that as equal value, because we sometimes want to put a value on our differences. But We're just different. So it's not a different value system or because you are this way or from this culture or this community, you're less than. And so being open to building relationships and understanding that it doesn't have to be like what you're used to, but it still has value. That's a very interesting perspective. And I'm going to try to remember that, that we're all diverse. And so I have to stop thinking of myself as we get put into these boxes as an early age. And you think every form you check, every form you fill out is asking you all these questions that are conditioning you to think in a certain way about your group, whether you're considered diverse or not in the eyes of whatever that data they're trying to collect from you is. I mean, even down to single, divorced, you know, married. I'm like, well, if I'm not married, I'm single. So why do you need to know if I'm divorced? (laughs) It's like, so I think that we're automatically programmed to just think of ourselves in a certain way. Sure. It's a mind shift, a culture change that we're trying to move as we progress DEI because we have been conditioned that way. We've been exposed to that for a very long time. We just have a foundation pointing out and then trying to classify our differences. And of course, that contributes to biases. It it contributes to us being prejudiced or favored. And one thing about biases is that everyone has them. Those snap judgments, our minds 
are wired to make snap judgments because we don't always have time. I, I tell people, you know, if I'm in the woods, which is probably not likely, but if I am there <laughs> and I run into a large animal, my mind isn't going to ask me, well, let me see if this animal is nice. <laughs> right. Let me see how big the animal teeth are, right? So we make these snap judgments. And we also have something called preferences. Now, the person that I, I train with, who's my counterpart, we have very deep, intentional conversations as we prepare to lead this work within the organization. But she often will say, we are not responsible for our first thought, but we're responsible for our second thought and our first action. Like You really can't help that you have a preference because we become very comfortable. Like I might have a bias for those that graduated from the same high school or the same college who are in the same industry who can speak my same language. But when that bias interferes with someone else's opportunity, that's when it becomes dangerous. So we have to have those conversations so that we can call it out and say, yeah, you know, I do an exercise where we take resumes that are pretty similar, but I'll change perhaps where they went to school. So if it's a very known college or university, some people will lean toward that because they're familiar with it. If they have a long work history in one company, People might lean to that. And so those are the things that we have to call out and be aware of if we really want to start creating a space for equity. That's very interesting preference. Say that again. You said that she says that you're not responsible for your first thought, but you're responsible for your second thought and your first action. And your first action. Okay. Yes. That's a that's a good one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have to print that off and put it up. I have two more questions for you and just appreciate you being here so much today. I would love to get you to do a, a talk maybe sometime for our staff. And I'm just curious, what can we as small business owners, and because this country runs on the backs of small businesses, so sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what small steps that we can take to make a big impact. If you could say three things that as small business leaders that we could do to impact DE and I and our organizations, what would those three things be? All right. So one, I would take ownership of my own learning, education, and focus around diversity, equity, and inclusion, meaning not waiting for it to fall from the sky or to be happenstance, but to be very intentional and take ownership over your own efforts in that. Two, I would establish myself and build relationships and brand yourself as one who's open and looking to be inclusive and acceptive of diverse populations, whether that's internally or externally, those that you serve and those you work with. And the third thing I believe is I would evaluate all of my practices and strategies, and I guide people to ask themselves some questions when it's around equity. One, will someone receive an advantage over someone else based on this decision? Will someone receive a disadvantage based on my decision. And that really cannot kind of help guide whether that decision is going to contribute to equity or not. Very good advice. I, I wrote those down. I think I try to keep it around three. I have so much. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's what I would suggest getting started. And, and small businesses, like you said, they have a unique opportunity to influence the space. And relationships are very important in small businesses. Once you build that reputation and set the tone, it starts to spread. 
And that's where you start building communities. And then you start building cities that really embrace and people feel welcome. One of the things we have to do in Knoxville is look more holistically about how everybody contributes to the DEI movement here. You grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm wondering if you felt marginalized in your life. We're about the same age, so we're in our 50s. Did you feel marginalized growing up in Knoxville? And why were you drawn to this type of work? Yeah, so that's a part of my story. When we talk about feeling marginalized for your listeners who are still getting familiar with the terms, it is kind of when you feel less than or less valued than another group. So being an African-American woman growing up in the South and in Knoxville, there were many times where I felt I had to go the extra mile while I had to prove that I was competent or capable in a space. It's easy to get exhausted from that. So I don't tackle it every day. Although I think there are opportunities where it's in front of me often. I decide when to to tackle it. And I think it's because we have we're we're in a different season. But going through that exhaustion and the need to always uh, prove yourself is an experience that can drive you or defeat you. Now, one of the reasons I majored in actuarial science, it was because, oh, they don't think I can do this. <laughs> and I can. Yeah, prove the, it wrong. Other piece of that is people always do a second take and they kind of ask me, you majored in what? Are you sure? Well, I'm pretty sure I know what I went to school for. <laughs> or, you know, they ask questions almost in surprise or shock for some of the accomplishments that I've had. But I think that's a part of the drive as well. My goal, however, in this equity and access space is to help others along their journey And it's not unique necessarily to just people of color. Any diverse aspect that you have, anything that makes you different, that's a part of your character, a part of your personality, a part of your being, is open to a bias. So there's something called a diversity wheel. And you start with your inner core, which is like your personality when you are born. Those things you really don't change often. And then you have an an external core, more about where you live, what are your hobbies, What is your work style, blue collar, white collar? Are you an executive? Where do you go to church? If you go to church, are you married? Are you not? Do you have children? Are you not? All those things that make us diverse and have subcultures, but biases can form around that. You mentioned, you know, why should they want to know if you're divorced? People have biases around that. Why should it matter if I'm from the North? People have biases around that. So it's things and we develop if hopefully we can develop strategies to navigate that so that we can help build bridges and figure out how we can combine our talents to progress forward. You mentioned innovation. I mentioned it earlier to really start looking at how society functions, how we can help solve problems that we don't even know are problems yet. It really takes a combination of diversity of thought. That's another thing that I kind of harp on is that we need diversity of thought. If we have the same experiences, the same geography, the same circles, we can't have diversity of thought. But we can definitely, and and all progress lies in that. It's beneficial to a company and a community to embrace that. But for me, yes, have I had my fair share of experience and feeling marginalized, less than, less valued, of course. And that's where you can have allies. 
and people that are more knowledgeable and recognize it. And once you recognize it, you become an advocate and you support that person. You give them a chance. Like I said, it can be driving or defeating them, but most of the time it is exhausting. I agree with that. I think that a lot of what I've done in my life has, I had something to prove because people didn't maybe think that I could run a business or they didn't think that I could do this or that. And it's always been what lights a fire under me. But then you're right. It can be absolutely exhausting and we have to know when to stop and just take care of ourselves and and look deep within. Tanisha, you're just such a blessing to talk to, such a force in our communities. Thank you so much. I mean, thank you for what you're doing in the world to make this world a better place starting in East Tennessee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Be sure to follow Tanisha's podcast, Talking with T, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher, and that's KD as in Kelly Dawn. And please follow the agency at Fletcher PR. We'll respond to your questions and comments. So if you want to post them with the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's MS interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And special thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Knoxville-based HumblePod. He's at HumblePod.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 